Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Art of War. War. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Sam. And I'm Clay. And this is the Art of War. And today, we're going to be covering the final battle, or the final major event that transpires in the Sino-Japanese War. The first Sino-Japanese The first. War. The first, not the second. That's yeah. that's for a future future podcast. Yeah, we're wrapping up today with the Battle of Weihaui. 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 Yeah, so following... Uh, the battle of Lukash, Lu- Lucian, Lu- Lucian Kwan, Lucian <laughs> the following the battle of Lucian Kwan, Port Arthur, Port Arthur, easier way to say it. Uh, Japan has now set its sights on the, I guess you can't say it's the final uh, Manchurian defense, but it's pretty much the the major last major defense in Manchuria, and that's the port slash city of Weihaui. Well, Weihaui is actually across the the sea, but it's like the last major naval defense that the Qing Empire has. This is positioned across from, um, it's positioned right across from Port Arthur, and it's kind of Port Arthur and Weihaui are the two gateways to the Boha Sea, which is a very important sea for China because it has access to Beijing and all these other really important cities and ports. So this losing this defense would pretty much spell an end to China in this war because they would just be so vulnerable. Yeah, and like we saw in the previous Battle of Port Arthur, the navy of the Qing Dynasty has withdrawn to Weihaui, and the previous plan of the Jap- Imperial Japanese Army was to completely destroy the Beiyang fleet to ensure that they could have supplies, they could have troops, they could bring anything from Japan over and not be contested at all. And then once they've taken the ocean, they've taken, you know, over the the sea, there's not really anything the Chinese can do except for withdraw to their their inland territories, their their fortifications. So they're they're continuing with their plan of going to follow up on destroying the Beiyang fleet completely, right. which is positioned in Weihaui. And this is actually almost kind of a change from what Japan's original goal was because under General Yamagata Aritomo, the Japanese army was supposed to capture Beijing and basically ensure the destruction of the entire Qing Empire. But this was at odds with the politics of Japan at the time because the Japanese Prime Minister Ito Hirobumi thought that by toppling the Qing Empire, it would create... just a large instability in Asia and then invite a bunch of Western intervention and Japan did not want that at all. So they pretty much pressured Yamagata to change his plan to just destroy the Qing Empire's naval capabilities so China could not contest Japan at sea. And that's honestly one of the reasons that General Yamagata Aritomo retired earlier during this, as this war was ongoing, was because he was almost kind of at odds with what the politics in Japan wanted. Yeah, and it's funny, like we had, we talked about in the previous podcasts, you know, in the past, if you wanted to conquer a civilization, if you wanted to conquer a nation, you just took everything, right? You became that nation. They became part of you. But now we're in, the, you know, the 
uh, 18th, 19th century, where it's now much different of a, a way of fighting these battles. It's more of they're trying to do so much damage to China that they're forced to sue for peace. They're forced to, uh, you know, make decisions that would help Japan or, or aid in Japan's, you know, increased success. We don't see them going for like complete conquering of all of China because it doesn't it doesn't make sense, especially since the rest of the world's watching this transpire. And like Clay said, they don't want the West coming in and starting to get a foothold because they already have a foothold at this point. You know, the British and America is trying to take control of these territories as as well as the the Japanese. So it's. It's right, right. problematic for them to to go further in than they have to. They they don't want to stretch themselves too thin. Yeah. So the plan is for the second uh, Japanese army that originally captured Port Arthur to go and capture Weihaui. But before doing that, they the second Japanese army just kind of goes through the rest of the Laodong Peninsula where Port Arthur was, and they capture a bunch of smaller towns and ports in the whole peninsula. And one of the most important cities that they capture after this is Haiching, which is positioned northwest of Port Arthur. And it's almost kind of like this crossroads city that connects Mukden, the Manchurian homeland city, to Port Arthur and even to Beijing. And there's a bunch of telecommunication lines that run through here. So it becomes a pretty important city for them to... Um, for the Japanese to take hold of and then they're able to base their communications between the different armies and the, even the naval forces from here. Yeah, and meanwhile, the Japanese Navy is basically uncontested, roaming all around the uh, coastline, the east coast of, of Manchuria and China, and they're heading towards Weihaui, which Weihaui, where it's positioned, it's on a bay, uh, the Weihaui Bay, which is very large. It's like a, you know, pretty much a massive lake. It's got two entrances to it, and in the center of those two entrances is a very large island that's heavily fortified, and the uh, Baying fleet is inside of that bay, so the, the Japanese are planning to approach it from the south and basically prevent the baying fleet from leaving the bay keep them trapped within the bay so that they can't you know retreat to some other port town or whatever because once again their objective is to completely eliminate this baying fleet you just destroy it and capture what what remains so the japanese army is moving on land to secure majority of manchuria so it can get into actual china and and surround weihaui and the uh, Japanese Navy is approaching the same way where they're trying to flank or surround the, the Bay bay of Weihaui. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, in the Qing forces, pretty much the only leader they have left is Admiral Ding Rusheng, who is the commander of the Beiyang fleet. And he is in command of the defense of Weihaui at this point as well, because there's just no one else. Li Hongzang, the very important Qing military leader that funded the entire army pretty much got stripped of all of his military um, leadership because he was pretty bad at strategizing and had a pretty bad track weather or track record. So Admiral Ding's pretty much the only person left. And if we talk about kind of the fortifications at Weihaui, it's very similar to, you know, Port Arthur, which is just this modernized port area that was modernized by, um, it was designed by German military advisors, so it's very, very well fortified, has a bunch of 
um, heavy guns and a pretty sizable garrison of like 6,500 men. And according to, you know, many naval commanders in the West at the time, it was regarded as pretty impregnable as well, if any attempt was made to seriously defend it. So Admiral Ding is kind of working with the same sort of starting material you have at Port Arthur, where you have a very well defensible location. You just kind of have to capitalize on that. Yeah, and it's even more well fortified than Port Arthur because at Port Arthur, their weakness was they had very little armaments placed on the coastal uh, portion of the city. And also the harbor wouldn't allow for the ships to kind of just chill in the harbor. They had to be outside of the harbor, which could, you know, result in the complete destruction of the baying fleet. So, it, but in this instance, it's, the harbor is essentially a giant bay. They have a bunch of, uh, they're called booms, but they're essentially just chains that prevent anything from getting into the bay any other ships from getting into the bay and also like i said there is an island uh called i believe it's called uh it's like lu kung tao it's lu kung tao or something it's this large island that's between the two chains and that's very heavily fortified that's actually where ding sets up his base and operations for for the the naval front and that means that now this entire walled city of Wei Wei has got extremely advanced, you know, the top of the line artillery, the the crew guns, and uh, the coastal portion of the wall is also heavily defended with a second layer on the island and then also the entire baying fleet, which is inside of the bay. So they're like way, way more fortified than they were previously because mm-hmm. Ding wasn't even allowed to... Uh, engage in the battle at port arthur right so looking on paper like i can definitely see why the western perspectives thought that this was like impossible to take for the japanese because you know in the previous all the previous battles it's the same narrative it's always like this this uh, fortifications it can't be taken you know and then two days later it's taken with like little resistance right but in this instance i could definitely see why you would think that it would be extremely hard to take yeah and Admiral Ding does a pretty good job of fortifying, especially from sea, because, you know, they're expecting more of a naval assault from the Japanese Navy. Um, but I think one of his mistakes in this is that he doesn't give too much forethought or strategy to fortifying from a land assault, because it is, and I mean, I assume in his mind, if the city holds and they can hold it from the naval assaults, then it, it'll be you know, better. Yeah. And I mean, also, I, you know, I, I wouldn't automatically uh, say that Ding didn't do a good job with that because like in this battle, it's like the previous battles. It's not, it's not really the responsibility of, of like the commander to ensure the defenses because the defenses were already set up very well on Weihaway. He was just kind of expanding them. It's more of, of the responsibility of the forces inside of way way to hold as long as they possibly can because that's the whole point of how heavily fortified it is is to to last you know like to make sure that the coming forces the sieging forces can't make any progress on land and if they can't make progress on land it's gonna be hard for the the naval forces to make progress in the the ocean so yeah i mean i guess he could he could have done a better job because yeah like you said he, he did expect it to come from from the sea the attack but I don't know. I don't know. I I find kind of strange since even at Port Arthur, you know, they expected more of a naval attack, but it was a land based assault that the Japanese launched. And I just don't see why they wouldn't learn from their past mistakes and 
figure out that they have to secure the surrounding land forts that are outside of the city. And if they do that, they would have a much better time of defending the city. But it seems yeah. like not much. Um, yeah, but I don't know what else could they do, right? The morale of the yeah. Qing troops is so low at this very, point very low. that they're really easy to rout at the first signs of any conflict. I mean, that's kind of the the whole story of the entire Sino-Japanese war is that you keep seeing the, the same reoccurring strategies from the Japanese and then the Chinese just fail to expect it or they fail to prepare against it. Like, you know, with all like Yalu and, and all the Asan, all those previous battles, the same strategy is pretty much employed a flanking maneuver, right? Mm-hmm. And then just a complete surrounding of the city. And they never put troops outside of the walls to maybe stop. They always have like a small detachment within the fortifications that are supposed to prevent the forces from arriving at the walls. So it's like, you, yeah, you'd think that they would make make uh, better decisions or, or learn from their mistakes, but they don't. They don't seem to do that throughout the whole the whole battle or the whole war. Yeah, and it also speaks to just kind of a lack of quality leaders in the, on the Qing's part. I mean, Admiral Ding is better than most that we've seen in, you know, the previous battles. Um, but even he doesn't have good enough handle over his own troops to command yeah. them in a way that, um, you know, they respect and wouldn't, wouldn't try to defect or anything like that. But anyways, so we have on the Japanese side, we have the Japanese naval commander, Admiral Ito Sukuyuki, and then General Oyama Iwayo, who's the commander in chief of the second Japanese army. And they're coordinating an attack on Weihawei. Yeah, and this is like the first real instance you see a full navy and land coordination for a an attack on a on a uh, fortification or or a, a land base. Mm-hmm. You s- see in the previous instances there'll be separate battles going on on land, but usually it's the land forces that are really making the main progress that are taking the cities and winning the battles. But in this instance, it's pretty core that they have the navy set up where they are to ensure that the Japanese land forces uh, can actually make it to the city themselves and take all these fortifications while they're heading towards Weihawei. Yeah, that's a good point because uh, the naval battles we've talked previously have almost been, you know, not planned at all, almost like coincidences mm-hmm. that they happened at the same time as land battles. Yeah. But but here, J- Japan has planned both the navy and the land assaults to, to coincide, which is... Uh, yeah, interesting and pretty effective. So, I mean, they're but but at this point, right? They're launching the attack, and it is the middle of winter, right? We're in January, yeah, moving January. into February, so it is peak winter time, and um, it's actually you know from what I read was a pretty harsh winter with some heavy snowfall. Yeah, and also like I you know I love talking about this because I have always seem to <laughs> mention it in every single podcast, but like the logistics of the Japanese army with you know a foreign force from hundreds and hundreds and thousands of miles pretty much away from japan they're able to you know keep their troops warm and fed and they're you know they're, they don't seem like they're really struggling too much uh, in camping in, in the chinese area then they like they probably should be more you know they should be being mm-hmm. molested and harassed by the the chinese but they're they do a pretty good job of making sure their troops are you know not struggling too much being thousands of miles from home yeah, that's a good point. They they do um, ensure that their troops are warm and well fed, which is pretty hard, especially during winter time overseas in a foreign country. Yeah. So yeah, I guess let's get into the battle. Um, I guess we can start. You can cover 
Japan's naval tactics, and I guess I'll go with more of the land tactics since I think I have more notes on that. Gotcha. Okay, so what it all starts off on the 18th of January. Well, this is before the land forces have really even started their move towards Weihaui. But uh, the the strategy the Japanese employ is that they want to start bombarding all of these outside fortifications. I guess let's. I guess I should mention this too. The the also the the thing that makes uh, Weihaui so heavily fortified and so impregnable is that it's on the coast so it doesn't really have a flank and mm-hmm. surrounding all of the walled portions of the city there is a bunch of small periphery fortifications small towns or, or walled little cities that will prevent the japanese from getting to weihaui without having you know to, to take a fight so the japanese navy their objective is what they're tasked to do is to constantly bombard the southern portions of this these fortifications. So they they start off their their barrage on this this fairly large. It's not too big. It's uh, a small fortification called Dingzhou, which they believe to be the most important fortification on the southern portion of Weihaowei, mm-hmm. and it serves two purposes. Because at first they're they're bombarding it to destroy it, you know, to prevent that from being an asset to the Chinese. But also they're using it as a distraction technique to allow the Japanese forces to be able to move to Weihaowei uncontested in that area. Because the Chinese, like we said, were expecting uh, a naval attack, and so now they see this bombardment of artillery. They start dedicating more resources to preventing against this this naval battle or this naval attack and all the while the Japanese forces are moving towards Weihaui. Right. Yeah. So the, the land assault, the Japanese forces land at, um, wrong Qing, which is a little, uh, Qing fortification. That's at the very tip of the peninsula that Weihaui sits at. So it's a little Southeast of Weihaui and they land there between the 20th and the 23rd of January. So, after the naval forces have already began the bombardment. Mm-hmm. And the whole plan of the second Japanese army, as it was at Julian Cheng, and we see at Port Arthur, is to just make their way towards Weihaui and along the way just capture all of the forts that are there that have the the defenders with the cannons and stuff like that. As we've seen in the previous battles, they usually start capturing one fort after another without too much resistance, and then the morale of the Qing defenders begins to just shatter completely and they just begin to just leave the forts undefended completely. And we begin to see that happening. But as always, the taking of the first few forts is where the majority of the Japanese casualties in the battles occur. And particularly during this battle on their way to Weiwei, we have the highest ranking Japanese um, soldier that's killed during an assault in a fort, and that was the Major General Odora Yasuzumi. So he died while storming one of the forts, and that's just notable because he's one of the highest ranking Japanese soldiers that actually perishes, and he has an entire woodblock art dedicated to him. So, But yeah, it's pretty easy time for, for the second army making their way up, especially because, like Sam said, a lot of the defense on the Qing side is being dedicated to sort of this naval bombardment that's occurring at the same time. Yeah, and what's what's weird though is that like you'd think 
I don't know if it was part of Ding's plan to take a really defensive stance, which, like we we were talking about, it's kind of silly that they don't learn from their mistakes. Like maybe they maybe they should have taken it on you know, a more offensive standpoint, but they don't here because like you'd think if if they were seeing this bombardment that was happening, they were seeing their fortifications being destroyed, and really you know they weren't they didn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. They didn't launch a naval attack, a counterattack on them. They don't even really f- fire back on the the. Uh, imperial japanese fleet so the imperial japanese fleet is just you know cruising around this these these chains and just shooting uncontested tons of artillery on these small little these little towns and it's you know it's kind of silly if you're going to dedicate so many resources and so much effort to stopping a bombardment to not actually do anything to stop the bombardment right yeah and i I figure you know part of it's probably for looking behind the scenes admiral ding's probably having a very tough time just keeping the Qing soldiers from fleeing completely. And so in trying to do that, he probably doesn't have enough time or enough men to even launch any kind of resemblance of a counterattack. Yeah, which is sad because this is like we were talking about two two podcasts ago. This was the most formidable naval force prior to the Sino-Japanese War. Like this was in Asia, the most powerful Mm -hmm. navy. And now it's kind of reduced to, like, it can't do anything. It's just trapped in this bay, not really putting up much of a fight. Yeah, it is It is unfortunate to see it fall from grace so quickly. Yeah. But, yeah, and, you know, so it's the Japanese offensive is very effective. And the, the Qing defenders start to just pretty much flee completely. And most of the last forts that the, the land assaults capture... Um, the Japanese forces, they capture the forts and no one's there. And they make their way to Weiawei. And by that point, most of the defenders have already fled the city completely. And so the second Japanese army is just able to walk into the city, similar like what we saw at Port Arthur. Yeah, I mean, prior to them, you know, before, before they get into Weiawei, the I guess this, this is probably the most bloody of battles. And it's sad that we don't have like the full numbers of the casualties of the Japanese because... You know, I think the longest prior to this that the Chinese ever held out was the first battle at Asan, mm-hmm. where they held out for pretty much the whole night. But in this instance, they hold out for about the the Beiyang army holds out for about nine hours before they decide to completely just abandon their positions, which is, you know, you'd think towards the end of this war when they've just had loss after loss after loss after, you know, they've had multiple different leaders change to you know they they lose faith in one guy then that new guy gets appointed they lose faith in him so you know they probably like we said have such low morale and for them to even hold out for nine hours against this much larger japanese force that's just been destroying them you know it's commendable at least they put up a fight this time you know and i'm sure they probably caused some heavy damage to the japanese yeah i mean the amount of heavy guns and artillery that they just had positioned at weihaway they they yeah the Qing defenders should have had some some kind of i don't know impact on the japanese forces yeah. a little bit but maybe that's why we don't have the actual capture i was thinking about this maybe the reason that it's not reported how many japanese died is because they kept it secret because they maybe this was like a lot they maybe lost a lot of soldiers in this battle and they didn't want that to get out to the rest of the world you right know? yeah i guess that because yeah, up to this point the story that's being told is just the utter dominance of the mm-hmm. japanese military and that's probably something that they would want to keep being told and also, you know, in the previous battles, 
they didn't have Western, uh, you know, reporters there, but now they have Western reporters and they just, the Western, Western reporters just witnessed the just pure massacre at Port Arthur. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're kind of scared to be reporting like not nice things about Japan. So maybe they knew the real numbers, but they were just afraid to actually tell what the numbers were. They didn't, you didn't want to say like, Oh, 3000 Japanese died. Cause they were afraid what would happen to them if they reported that. Yeah. But yeah. So in the face of, you know, you know, pretty crushing defeat, Admiral Ding, he takes the remaining Beiyang fleet and he retreats to the, the island fortification that you were talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, this is the saddest thing too is because in the previous battle of like the Yalu River, they didn't really, at their disposal, they had, you know, they had two warships and a bunch of battleships, right? They didn't have really anything other than that. And now they even have less, you know, they lost the Jinzhou, which got sunk uh, or ran up, ran onto a sandbar and they abandoned. And so the only ship that they really have at their disposal that can actually even fight against the Japanese is their, their main was like their, their main uh, Ding, Ding Wan, I think it was, yeah, Ding Wan, which was their main uh, other warship other than the Zinwan. Mm-hmm. But in this battle, they actually were going to employ, they had a whole plan to use these things called torpedo boats, which were basically, they're very small, like maybe the size, maybe the size of a small, you know, pontoon boat, maybe double the length of a pontoon boat, but generally the same size, right? They were heavily armored and their whole objective was they were so quick and agile that they could get around warships and not get sunk and they would be able to launch torpedoes and sink these giant warships so their entire purpose was to sink warships and that's what the japanese was using to bombard the the city and bombard all the the surrounding territories but they never used them they they're pretty much completely useless and it's really sad because at the time this was like an extremely new technology. This was probably one of the first times where one of the first major times that torpedo boats with self-guided missiles were even really used in a setting. And they don't even, the, the Chinese don't use them, but the Japanese do. They're using them constantly. But it just imagine if they had, because they had like 13 of them, the, the yeah. Chinese. If they had been able to use those in the beginning of the bombardment, it might have gone completely differently if they were able to sink one or two of the ships or maybe stop them from even firing onto the city, right? Right. But yeah. they don't they don't even get to use them. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know if it's something to do with the training that the, the Qing soldiers that were manning the boats weren't trained well enough to really utilize them to their full extent like the Japanese soldiers were or if it was just, you know, something else, but yeah, it's definitely a very one-sided battle. Yeah, and then, you know, the uh, Ding wants to put up a fight, but as soon as he starts to order his torpedo boats to engage, they rout. They mutiny, yeah. and they rout, and they start to try to escape from the northern exit where the the, uh, the one of the exits is or one of the entrances to the bay is, and they're just destroyed seven of the six of the boats are completely sunk and then seven of them are captured by the japanese so now ding is left with like three battleships and the ding ding Wan at his disposal and nothing else that's all he has right right and now that those torpedo boats are gone the japanese are able to move even closer to the blockade which is the the chain the the booms and they just cut the boom, and then they move straight into the the actual bay of, of Weihawei. Yeah. And so Ding sees 
it's pretty much over, right? There's there's no chance anymore. Like they don't have any ability to even sink these warships except for the Dingwan, but the Dingwan is at right now is getting bombarded as they're moving in and a letter is sent to Ding from Itos Sukayuki that basically is saying like I respect you. I see you as a friend. I'm sad that we have to fight each other. Surrender so that nobody no one else has to die. You can join up with me. We can go back to Japan. You can be you'll be treated very well. And then you can come back to China after we take China and you can help rebuild it and pr- resume your position as a naval commander. So it's like a super nice letter, right. super super, you know, uh kind. And Ding responds equally kind, says thank you so much. You know, I I would love to to be your friend but I can't abandon my position. And then he, within an hour, kills himself after ordering his second-in-command, Liu Buchan, to scuttle their ships and sink them all. Yeah. And and then Liu Buchan kills himself. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. He, Admiral Ding, drinks, I mean, from what I read, he drinks poison to kill himself. And, yeah, some Mm -hmm. of his other commanding officers follow shoot, or follow suit by shooting themselves. And... Actually, you know, this move gained a lot of respect from the Japanese soldiers because it is, you know, that idea of Bushido that when you lose a major military battle or you suffer a major defeat, the only course of action to regain your honor is to take your own life. And, I, you know, probably because of his actions, Admiral Ding, he almost ensures that the surrender of his remaining troops will go pretty smoothly and... It really does because the Japanese forces treat the remaining troops of the Qing forces pretty pretty nicely and actually release most of them because of, um, you know, it's attributed to what Admiral Ding did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's, you know, that's the end of the Beiying fleet. Now that the all the torpedo boats are in their hands, all the, the battleships, and now their, you know, maiden ship, the Ding Wan, is in the control of the japanese there's just mm-hmm. they have no naval power at all and they have no resources or they have no ability to even build anymore and if they were to build anything it would be very small ships that couldn't even contest these larger ships because there's no uh, port city that they have access to there's no ability to actually create or harbor these massive ships that they once had so their their naval presence is completely gone from the world they're they're done in the ocean yeah. So, yeah, the Japanese definitely achieved their goal of stripping China of its naval fleet and its naval capabilities, and they do it very efficiently. And, you know, with the taking of Weihaowei, this almost ensures that the Qing Empire has to come to the table now and try to sue for peace or enter peace negotiations because now Japan controls pretty much the entirety of the Yellow Seas and the Bohai Seas. Or Boha Seas. And so now Japan, you know, using its naval capabilities can directly attack the majority of China mainland. And that's just, you know, a very scary situation for the Qing Empire to be in. Yeah. And the only last, like the, the only last fortification that the Qing dynasty even has at their disposal anymore is Beijing, which is their capital, right? right. And they, the position where Beijing is, it's, kind of in the center of china you know it's and it's very easily to be like easily uh surrounded so now that uh you know lucian cow and and 
uh, Weihao Wei has been taken, Muck Din's taken, they can just go and do the same thing that they did at all the previous battles. They can just completely surround the city, and then the same thing will occur. They'll just take it, you know, with little resistance. And the Qing Dynasty doesn't want to lose Be- Beijing. That's their, their capital. That's their most important city. And mm-hmm. so they're kind of, yeah, like you said, they're kind of forced into surrendering or, or suing it for peace to start up some negotiations some mm-hmm. di- diplomatic negotiations with japan which is what they do pretty pretty soon after yeah the diplomat that they send is lee hong zing mm-hmm. yeah he goes to japan and shimonoseki and engages in these peace negotiations and as we talked in the last podcast right he was supposed to be executed for his um you know terrible fa- failures during the war but using his influence and his um economic power he's able to get out of that and you know even position himself here where he is influential again yeah and i i I was reading that one of the reasons that he was sent is because there was nobody else that the japanese even recognized Mm -hmm. like there was no other leader that even existed that the japanese could associate with the Qing dynasty so they picked the only person that still had kind of like you know some noteworthy claim to to the military because like all of the previous leaders have been killed or killed themselves so it's it's literally just Li Hong Zhang that's that's left so yeah he's chosen as the diplomat to go and negotiate with the Japanese and it goes over pretty well I mean not for the Chinese but like in terms of negotiations it happens pretty quickly and they're able to come to a, a an agreement that of course japan gets to hold all the territories that they previously occupied or took and china gets to stay as an independent country like you know like we were saying they don't yeah take all of china but yeah something interesting that's going on with these peace negotiations is that they're still fighting in manchuria all these peace negotiations are going on and what i find interesting about this is because we have a new Qing leader that emerges from somewhere. I don't know where he was for the rest of the entire war, but we have this Viceroy Lu Kunyi who arrives in Manchuria in February and takes command of the Qing forces there. And he's the only Qing commander to launch an offensive in this entire war. So he gathers about 16,000 troops and he goes to lay siege to Hei Qing that really influential city that the Japanese originally captured. And he goes to try to capture that back. And he's actually, you know, prepared to do a very lengthy siege and the first initial assault fails. But then, you know, in mid-February, they the Qing forces receive word that Wei Wei has fallen. And after his troops hear that, they pretty much rout like all of the other Qing troops. And he's, a, he's supposed to call off the assault but I thought it was pretty interesting because Liu Kanyi is actually pretty influential in China since he was a big proponent of adopting Western principles and tactics. And even after this war, he really pushed for the Qing dynasty to structure their military more similarly to that of the Western nations like Japan did. But he's largely ignored. And uh, it almost seems like that's one of the main reasons that the Qing dynasty eventually falls. Yeah, and, you know, I'm just going to include this because I find it just so incredibly interesting, is that, you know, 30 years prior to this, the Japanese were the most isolationist country in the entire world, pretty much, Mm -hmm. and they hated Western influences, they hated pretty much any foreign influence at all, and they transition in a 30-year period 
due to the Meiji Restoration, to one of the more accepting of foreign uh, advice and concepts, and they are the ones that apply it the best out of really, really any other Asian country. They're able to take these foreign values and make it their own in their own way, and they're able to conquer an entire country, pretty much, that was the powerhouse of Asia mm-hmm. in a year, right? Yeah. And then China themselves, who has access to all of these Western influences, has had them for hundreds of years, pretty much. They're also, you know, using them to an extent, but they're not fully applying them. And they still kind of have a resentment to Western Western powers. And so they don't really use them at all. And it's just it's it's pretty I think it's pretty crazy that in a 30 year period they transition. So so definitely, you know, yeah, it's very effective. And, you know, we see the fruit of that labor in this war as Japan was just very dominant. And, you know, in the Treaty of Shimonoseki, Japan does pretty much get everything that they asked for because, you know, the Qing dynasty doesn't really have much bargaining to go on about. Mm -hmm. But one of the most interesting things I found was that Japan would also get Taiwan in this treaty as well. Yeah. So not only do they get the island nations they've already captured, but they're and that Korea is its own sovereign nation now. But they Japan also gets kind of you know this vassal ship of Taiwan, which wasn't even involved in the war at all. Yeah, and they get a, they get pretty much all of the Pacific territories that uh, China controlled. Mm-hmm. And what surprises me on a, you know another note is that Japan didn't ask for more. Like. I could have seen Japan taking everything that the Qing dynasty had and making them this tiny little nation, but they choose not to because like there's nothing China could have done to, to you know, repel this force at this point. All right. they had left was Beijing, right? But Well, what ends up happening, right, is because in, in the treaty they have, or Japan gets the Laodong Peninsula with Port Arthur, mm-hmm. and since Port Arthur is so influential, um, Russia had a lot of stakes in Port Arthur. So Russia did not want Japan to take it. And that leads to the triple intervention, which was Russia, Germany, and France. And they basically threatened war with Japan if it didn't release its claim of the Laodang Peninsula and Port Arthur. Which happens. Yeah. So Japan, they they try to get allies themselves, right? They go to the U.S. and some other Western nations that are more friendly to them. And try to form a coalition there so they can, you know, push back against this threat so they can keep what in their eyes they earned through this war and they don't get anybody to agree to support them. So they have no choice basically but to give up the occupation of the Laodang Peninsula. But right after that happens, right after this agreement happens, Russian forces basically move into Laodang Peninsula and they occupy Port Arthur and begin to fortify it. And so this is, you know, almost like a big middle finger to Japan, and it really angers Japan. And this is, you know, pretty much the main cause of the Russo-Japanese War that just happens, you know, less than 10 years later. Yep. And yeah, that's that's pretty much it. That, you know, the China's lost half of their territories. They've lost Manchuria. They've lost Korea. They've lost Taiwan. They've lost their Pacific territories. Japan's acquired mm-hmm. the majority of them. You know, they don't necessarily own korea but you know i did little air quotes in the air because they pretty much own korea you know they they've installed a government that's loyal to japan they get you know they're like a vassal state korea becomes like a vassal state to japan even though they they state that they're you know independent and sovereign but 
that's you know that's a huge huge boost to japan just just taking korea in itself is just a massive massive economic boost because if they're this tiny land or this tiny ocean um, island based country and they now have access to these vast swaths of resources in korea and just you know 30 years back they started their industrial revolution and they're they're pushing it even further and then you see in the russia japanese war and the second sino japanese war and even world war ii they become you know one of the most powerful militarily countries in the world yeah and this was very important in that and you know this war japan gains so much and it doesn't really cost them that much and the whole war is you know only about a year or so yeah, and they get you know they've been they get commended by a bunch of uh, uh, Western powers for how expertly they handled the war, how quickly they accomplished their goals, and they lost none of their ships. So you know that's probably one of the biggest costs for one of these wars is losing these warships because these were right. you know new technology that were extremely costly to construct, extremely costly to repair. They don't lose a single one of those. They lose a total. Let's see, I have it, I have it here somewhere in my notes. Where is it? I believe the entire war, they lose a total of, from battles itself, they lose like a thousand soldiers. Yeah, I think it's only a thousand. They lose about 10,000 from like, you know, sickness and death. But from just battles, they lose a thousand people, which is just crazy when you're going against a country like China, which had Mm -hmm. a standing army of like 700,000 troops, right? And China itself loses about 60,000 the entire yeah. battle or it's really wild especially you know thinking in perspective this is japan's coming out as a world power you know this is really the first time the rest of the world gets to see the modernization campaign in japan and how effective it was and yeah. boy man they they definitely show that they um they are they are a significant power in the east yeah and you know i was thinking it Imagine if they lose this war, they probably would not have really been a important ally to Germany in the world in World War II. They mm-hmm. probably would have not been able to secure the Pacific, and then I, th- I that war would have just not not been close to as long as it was, because Japan wouldn't even been relevant. They would have not yeah. had the territories. They wouldn't have been able to grow like they did. And so this is it's pretty defining for the coming fifty yeah. years. And especially for Japan's ideology, right? Like this, mm-hmm. this defines the imperialistic nature that Japan yeah. adopts for the next fifty years. Yeah, and that you know you see that in World War Two, where they're taking everything they possibly can lay their hands on, and yeah. So I mean, that's that's pretty much the conclusion of it. You know, the whole Sino-Japanese War lasts a total of nine months and mm-hmm. results in you know, about sixty-five thousand people dying and uh, a complete shift of territory to Japan. And, yeah. you know, the entry of uh, Japan into the the Western Western eye. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed learning about it. There was definitely a lot of interesting people involved in this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got the one-eyed dragon, one-eyed that dragon. one yeah. <laughs> Japanese leader that doesn't come up again, but he was and, pretty cool. Uh, Zhu Bagoi. Is that Zhu oh, Bagoi? Yeah. The, yeah. the Muslim guy that... Honestly, if they had yeah, if they had more leaders like him, the Qing forces mm-hmm. would have done much better. Much better. And then yeah, so that's that's all we got. Oh, we got yeah. to do our we got to do our flaming pig. 
Yeah, we have to do the flame pig rating. I think this hmm. is probably one of the the better ones to do the rating on. There's a lot that happens. You know, it's not yeah. like just like one sided completely. You know, there's yeah. at least some fighting. Probably the torpedo boats, honestly, is what yeah. I would. Uh, I mean, it's. I mean, they are on fire. Hmm. You gonna leave pigs on fire? I don't know if that's flaming pig status. <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't give it a flaming pig. You can't. It's not possible. You can't give that high of a rating. <laughs> Until we actually cover a battle that uses flaming pig. Yeah, I'll give it flaming piglet. <laughs> flaming piglet. Yeah, I guess small flaming pig. I, yeah, I'm gonna say the the legs of the piglet are on fire, not the full body of it, just the legs. So it's like yeah, a just demonic looking little piglet. Just ran through some yeah some, some oil or something. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, I guess that's. Yeah, that's all I had to talk about. Um, But yeah, I guess we're going to think about what we're going to do. I am going to be gone in two weeks for about a month. So So yeah, we might might be taking a hiatus for for about a month unless we choose to record a bunch of episodes prior and then release them while he's gone. But we'll we'll make a decision on that. Yeah, might happen. Or if it doesn't, then we will be back. mid-august i believe yep yep but yeah in the meantime um if any of you have any suggestions for wars or just you know single battles that you would like covered just let us know and we always happy to hear any suggestions like that and it really helps us especially when we're trying to sort of plan out which which campaigns we're going to cover yep and then you know it's I'm down to cover anything past or present, you know, just anything war related we're, we're down to do. Yeah. And tell us, like, if you have any critiques of, of our podcast, if you have any issues with what we say or you think we should include more stuff, just let us know. We're happy. We're happy for the suggestions. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely try, you know, our best to do our research. Um, some of these campaigns and battles are a little bit more obscure. So sometimes yeah. it's hard to find primary and secondary literature that we can use you know, besides, of course, Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. But we, we definitely try to get a, a few different sources and try to put together as best we can what we think uh, is important to talk about. Yep. So I get I, I hope you guys enjoyed our coverage of this kind of like unknown war of this first, you know, Japanese war. And, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe it's just um, like, I don't know. It, I wonder in Japan, oh, they sure, probably yeah. learn I mean, about this, yeah, you know? Sure. Yeah. So. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure Asia is is you know they probably know of this, but right. from from a Western perspective, it's kind of like yeah. I I had never really I had heard of the Sino Japanese Wars, but I you know had knew nothing about the first one, not not yeah. a clue. So, True. all right, it was fun covering it. It was. It was indeed. Well, I think that's about it. So thanks for listening, everybody. And yeah, check us yeah. out next week if there is a next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Might be check us out in August. Yeah, we'll see. All right. Bye. Adios. Hi, listeners. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, make sure to follow us on all of our social medias. You can find our social medias in the description on our Spotify page. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to check out our sister podcast, Gray Skies. Each week, the host Eliza talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history. And hopefully, we're going to be able to collaborate with her. Yeah, so look forward to that. 